Rupert, would like to request your kind attention. Um, I thought of uh, speaking about the practice of samatha, stillness, tonight. And um, I sensed some interest in the group when I broached this topic. I know this is the inside tradition and um, there are a lot of strange ideas around the relationship of samatha and vipassana, of insight and unification of mind. And um, we find these two aspects of mind cultivation very early on in Buddhist teaching. There is a, a telling little passage in the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha, and one has to imagine his voice being particularly calm at that stage and almost exhorting. One has to imagine that he has to quell some disagreements in his community or around this topic when he calmly explains that some people develop insight and then develop uh, stillness, that other people develop stillness and then develop insight. And a third group develops insight and stillness conjointly. Yeah. One has to imagine uh, there must have been a little bit of argument going on in his monastic community uh, about the sequence of the development of these both worthy qualities. Um, in fact, the ripples of these arguments continue up to today, <laughs> uh, not just in the monastic community. If you're a dedicated meditator, then you will know uh, of various generally credible camps with plausible arguments, with uh, exemplary capacity to um, buttress their particular point of view with canonical and commentarial evidence for their particular point. This continues up to today. So I am heartened by one of Ajahn Chah's ingenious, uh, simple and yet very effective ways of outlining the relationship. And he said the relationship between Samatha and Vipassana is like <clears throat> if you take up a stick doesn't matter which end you take it up. If you take it up long enough, you will have both ends of the stick. Yeah, whether you take it up at the samatha end or at the vipassana end, it's one stick. If you really take it up, you will have the stick with both ends. Another time he explained the, the issue when you develop insight without stillness, He likened this to candle, you know, the insight without stillness is, is no, it's the match. You know, you light the match in the dark, you see a few things around you, and just as you start to get a, a feel for, you know, the lay of the land and the contours and everything, you, you burn your fingers and it gets dark again. 
if you uh, build samatha, this is like building a candle without lighting it. You know, you dip it in, you dip the wick in wax, and then in water, you dry wax, water dry, and it kind of gets nice and fat and big and strong, but somehow no light, no light emerges. So the idea obviously is to bring the light of insight and combine it with the strength of samatha, or as I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, it seems to be already in the distant past, uh, as my friend Ajahn Chandako referred to, uh, this is the, the image of the sharpness of a blade, a razor blade, which is inside, and the weight of an axe that gives that, bl that sharp blade the power to actually penetrate through things. If you want to chop wood, uh, you need sharpness, but the sharpness of a razor blade doesn't do the job. You need that sharpness combined with some weight, with some oomph. Otherwise, you know, your blade just either breaks or gets stuck. So what I thought of doing tonight was uh, taking a little detour into a teaching that comes... Today, it comes to us uh, generally from the, the Mahamudra tradition. It's uh, the refers to the shamatha part of the Mahamudra tradition. But in fact, that teaching it is based on goes back to the 4th century AD. In other words, it's uh, a good deal older than the Visuddhimagga, uh, the um, famous and voluminous uh, Theravada commentary, the compilation uh, of teachings that for the first time in the Pali tradition tries to grapple the whole of Buddhist teaching within the scope of one volume of text. Yeah? 900 pages of printed Latin text, Pali, is the, that's as small as Theravada Buddhism uh, can be condensed. And that process happens to take place uh, somewhere in the 5th century in Sri Lanka, where that uh, great commentator credited to have written the, the largest part of the commentaries, uh, substantial part of the commentaries on the Vinaya, and uh, that famous huge volume of the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification. So that, in a way, is the Theravada take on the Pali texts. Now, these Pali texts, they, they are 900 years older. We know they have existed at least uh, 250 BC, because we have quotes of these texts in the rock and um, pillar edicts of Emperor Ashoka, who quotes some of these texts, some of them verbatim, some of them by name, and those couple of quotes we can still identify in the Pali Canon recensions we have today, the Burmese one, the Sinhalese one, and the Khmer one, the Mon one. We have differing recensions of something we know has been going back to the very earliest days of the Buddha. We know the Buddha hasn't written down anything, even though writing was known. Um, the monastic rules of the nuns, for example, uh, acknowledge that it's a perfectly okay things, thing for nuns to be doing writing, but the Indian tradition in those days was highly suspicious of the act of writing, committing spiritual teachings to writing. You know, there are commercial writings uh, have been identified from the Buddha's day 
uh, kingly decrees have been uh, found, but spiritual traditions have not been written down. The Buddha, very much like other Indian traditions, has not felt it necessary that his teaching was written down. He refused for his teaching even to be cast into uh, proper chandas, into proper metric uh, rhymes. He uh, is famously refuting the appeal of two of his disciples of better background and of more literary training who felt that uh, the monks of the Buddha would, with their dialect, distort and um, blemish, put blemishes on the Buddha's teaching by reciting the Buddha's teaching in their own words or in their own dialects, in their own language. And the Buddha famously insisted that his disciples are to learn his teachings in their own languages, which in turn historically has spawned one of the greatest translation efforts in the human history. Uh, into various Indic languages and then Chinese languages and then uh, further afield. You know. So that's why we have these fabulous translation traditions starting in China. You know, hundreds of years of translation efforts. Um, first into a borrowed Taoist language and then by the time the first huge batch of Indic text had been translated into Chinese, there was now suddenly a Chinese Buddhist language. And uh, in, in the fourth century, Kumarajiva decided that they start again translating these texts into the now Buddhist Chinese language and uh, started again the whole project. Amazing amount of effort. A good deal later, five, six hundred layers later, uh, texts were uh, translated into Tibetan. They were also translated into many languages we have only very scant knowledge of, um, Central Asian languages, uh, Zoktian and uh, Gandhari and uh, amazing stuff. Only recently things have been found. And these texts uh, show a great variety of both script divergence and uh, language diversion. So Buddhist teachings were very early on translated into a whole number of languages. In fact, it is probably safe to assume that even the Pali canon is a translation. You know. Since the Buddha did not speak Pali, something fairly close, but we have to assume that even what we have as the Pali canon is probably uh, one of the earliest uh, translations. So, our text goes back to the 4th century AD. In other words, it's a little older than uh, what makes Theravada Theravada. And uh, it's, uh, the author of that text is a great commentator called Asanga. And he has a model of shamatha practice in nine stages. And to help this along, I thought of uh, handing out some diagrams to you. Would you help me with this? There should be enough for 30. And um, as you may know, there is a, an image occurring already in the old suttas <clears throat> likening the mind to an elephant. The power of the mind to do things is obvious um, when we look at the power of the elephant. A trained elephant is... Um, you know, before we had machines, tr elephants 
trained elephants in all traditions were um, powerful animals to help with building, they helped in warfare, they helped in civic engineering, they were representative animals, and um, these, if you've ever met an elephant in the wild, then you know this is a pretty impressive creature. Thank you. So, very early on, Buddhist traditions have said, uh, like an untrained elephant, a wild elephant or a crazy elephant is uh, a symbol of immense danger to both life and, um, you know, everything that's around. So the, the untrained mind has, on, on, we need as much light as we can get hold of. Can somebody crank up the light, please? Yeah, thank you. So it, an untrained elephant, a deranged elephant, uh, this is an image that occurs in the suttas a couple of times as something that is one, one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a, say, urban settlement, a stampeding elephant. Uh, even today, uh, you know, if you go to India, uh, panicky elephants are always a danger to great festivities. If you've ever been to a, to a, to a Kumbha Mela or to another big Indian activity, the uh, there have been regular incidents where elephants were uh, going crazy and actually have injured or killed people. The trained elephant, contrary to that, is an immensely youthful thing. And so the trained mind and the untrained mind are likened to a, a, a deranged, a crazy elephant and a tamed and highly useful elephant. Yeah. So what you have in front of you <coughs> is um, unfortunately only black and white. That's as good as I could make it uh, this afternoon. Um, basically, the, the image starts at the bottom. And you have various elements. Let's identify them. This, the drawing actually is not very old. As you see, the drawing is Tibetan. It's probably 19th century. So the actual pictorial outcome of this teaching is relatively late. The illustration is relatively late, but the textual teaching is, um, you know, 1500 years older, probably even older than that. We know the image of the elephant occurs in the Pali Canon a number of times. There's one passage where uh, it is described, if you want to tame a crazy elephant, what you need is two tame elephants, and you make them go up to the crazy elephant and snuggle up to him. You know, If he runs around, you have to go with the tame elephants and then they whisper gentle things into his ears you know, while running at speed with him and then gradually calming him down. So this mind-elephant collection or co correlation is very, very old. Much, much older than this image here. So if you look at this image, it starts bottom right, you have a temple and there you have a fellow which looks like a monk, and that monk is our meditator. He wields two tools. <clears throat> he has a rope, that's number three, and he has a hook, which is number four. These two are sati and sampajanya. Um, again, you, rec you recognize the image of the rope for sati from the Visuddhimagga. Remember the farmer who waits for his cows that were running away during the daytime? He goes and waits at the watering hole with, his, with the rope of sati. Rather than chasing them into the forest, 
uh, or after chasing after them as they run in the forest, he waits till they come to the watering hole, have drunk and stand there, and then he puts on the rope of mindfulness on them. So the image of um, the rope here is a, a time-honored uh, depiction of the power of sati to connect with something. The goad of Sampajanya, the goad of clear comprehension, is also an old tool that occurs in the Pali Canon. Now, our monk here starts his path with the power of hearing. Yeah. It's the power of hearing. First, it is the hearing of the little stream that flows just in front. You see the bridge there? And then it is uh, he, he hears the stream and he uh, discerns that raging elephant. You see a few things. You see on, in the curve <clears throat> a number of times, first of all, it's with number five, it starts, this is a flame. And you see that flame occurring along the path. And the flame tends to become smaller and smaller. That flame stands for effort. It stands for application. It stands for the quality of anuyoga, of uh, harnessing oneself to a task. Then you have other elements, the the color of the element, and there is a monkey, shows you, um, no, the elephant itself shows you the, the wild mind. Yeah. Uh, the color of the elephant shows you the tendency to weakness and sluggishness. And the monkey, uh, it's not difficult to to find out what the monkey is. The monkey is a, a symbol of the famous Kapichitang, the famous monkey mind. Yeah? It's the power of distraction and dissipation. Yeah. So you have nine elephants, which stands for, stand for the nine stages of the path. And then you have some fancy stuff at the top, which I uh, say some things when we, when we get there to the fancy stuff. Um, <laughs> We identify a couple of things here. We, um, fogginess is one of the qualities of that dark color. Weakness and fogginess because they cloud the mind. Yeah. Uh, the monkey's uh, dark color is a symbol of scattering of attention. Yeah. Distraction, uh, inner turbulence and outer attraction likewise. Then, if you look close, somewhere after the between the first and the second bend, you have um, number ten, if you can make that out, and to the right of number ten, uh, that has no number. You have basically a fruit, fruit three fruit in a plate. That is number ten, and to the right of it, you have a katak, uh, a cloth. Then the further bend, you have a conch. To the right of the conch, you have two circular uh, icons. They are symbols. And a bend further, in the, in the last bend up, you have uh, a strange-looking thing that is a mirror. So if you look at these things, the fruit stands for taste, the cloth stands for touch, the perfume conch stands for smell, the symbol stands for hearing, the mirror up here stands for seeing. So you have the five outer senses yeah, along the path here. You're getting to assemble the pieces here. 
So we look at, our monk has to do quite some effort, the, 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 uh, the, the monkey leading the elephant at a fast clip. Uh, a wild monkey followed by a wild black elephant. This is the mind. Yeah? I'll give you, I want to give you a little quote of this. That is, this piece here is from Shantideva's famous Bodhisattva Jaryavatara, uh, an 8th century text that refers to these, ele these, Im these images. Um, Wandering where it will, the elephant of mind will bring us down to pains of deepest hell. No worldly beast, however wild, could bring upon such calamities. If with mindfulness rope the elephant of mind is tethered all around, our fears will come to nothing, every virtue drop into our hands. Tigers, lions, elephants and bears, snakes and every hostile beast, those who guard the prisoners in hell, all ghosts and ghouls and every evil phantom, by simply binding of this mind alone, all these things are likewise bound. By simply taming of this mind alone, all these things are likewise tamed. Yeah. This gives you an idea of the, what this stands for. And uh, remember, you know, we're jumping through the centuries here. Yeah? The origin of these nine stages of developing stillness, the developing calm abiding. Uh, and then we have the 8th century here, the famous ethic uh, poet and uh, philosopher Shantideva, who uh, a book... Even if you feel a firm Theravada Buddhist, this is a definite recommendation. Read his Bodhisattva Jaryavatara. It's a beautiful book. So the image here of that, the danger of that wild elephant, uh, I think is amply outlined, even though you may probably talk today not in terms of hell realms and tigers, snakes and uh, lions, but uh, we are quite aware of the danger of wild untamed minds. Yeah? They drag us into uh, rage, they drag us into depression, they drag us into um, addictions, they drag us into um, cynicism. A, a, a mind that runs wild is, from every contemplative tradition's point of view, the utmost danger. Yeah? The Dhammapada speaks of this. There's no blessing higher than a, a tamed mind, a mind that is willing to be helpful, that is both strong and kind, that is uh, loyal and fearless. Yeah. These are all qualities of the, the elephant. If you, if you see how in Thai language you have many, uh, many um, analogies using the image of the, the war elephant, you know, he's completely dutiful, he's completely unafraid, he, he can be ferocious and he can be very, very tame and patient. So that image of a powerful, the, the most powerful of all animals uh, in, in these regions is uh, the likeness of the, the power of the mind. It's not the muscles which do it, it's not your will that does it, it's the mind as a whole. So, what's happening? We have, <clears throat> you see, in the first bend, the fire of effort has to be pretty high. Our monk has to do quite some work to get even uh, to take up the chase. And 
He is way behind, still at number nine. You know, he's still lagging fairly behind, shaking his clear comprehension and, uh, you know, his empty news there. Uh, and elephant is still ahead. The fire has barely diminished. Stage two, number eleven, we see the monkey and the elephant are slower, and they have a white patch on their head. Yeah? That means things are getting better. But still, they're pretty much on their own. Uh, the, the monkey is still leading the elephant, and they pay no heed to our meditator. Though the meditator still has to do hard work to catch up with them. So the fires in the curve, again, are there, and the next stage we see that the monk has finally gotten hold of the elephant. Yeah. He has roped him in. They have established relationship. Both the monk turns towards the elephant and the elephant turns back towards the monk. The monkey turns towards the monk. They, they now have white heads. And miraculously, we have a little rabbit. <laughs> and as you can expect, this, is, this does not bode well. Yeah? Sweet as it is, this rabbit is a trouble. This rabbit is trouble. The, the varying uh, interpretations of these texts um, uh, speak that this rabbit basically stands for spacing out. It stands for passivity. It stands for a subtle daze of mind. Yeah? It's the kind of more subtle distraction than the sheer madness of the running elephant or the the triggers of the five sensory contacts here um, iconographically depicted as smell, the perfume, hearing, the symbols, fruit as the taste, cloth as the touch, and mirror for seeing. So there are other problems along the way than just the five senses. Lethargy is one, subtle distractions, what the Tibetan traditions famously calls the sinking mind. Yeah the energy that does not rise. Uh, I think spacing out is probably the most uh, psychologically apt description here. Yeah? It's being, being in a place which starts to be a little more peaceful and we just want to stay there. Yeah? We just don't want it to change. We just want to bask in it. Yeah? That's what, that's what uh, after finally getting uh, a taste of peace, we just want to stay there. Yeah? Something says, haven't I deserved this, you know? Six weeks of retreat, finally, you know. Just let me zonk out in impunity for a while. Just uh, Haven't I done my work? Do I not, have I not earned this very hard? Um, or we're just going into some, uh, something that feels strangely controlled and quite open, you know. If, depending on where we start from, uh, much of our experience of mind can be constriction, you know? constriction of not getting what I think I should get, constriction of not being able to fix things. I, I cannot fix how you perceive me, you know, just to live with that, that we perceive each other constantly and that we ultimately have no power how we are perceived. I cannot fix the, your perceptions of me. As soon as I show myself to you or even if I do not show myself to you that doesn't stop you from holding perceptions about me and I have to live that your perceptions of me are basically beyond my control 
And some of us are trying to fix other people's perceptions of me. You know, getting you to agree that your perception of me is in accordance with my perception of me. Yeah? And if you dare not to do so, to tell me something else, or to say something else, then I either disown you and have no more relationship with you, or I try to convince you, or I try to pathologize you, or I try to get rid of you, or uh, I argue with you. Forgot who said that anger is my argument with the world. I've always could relate to that. My argument with the world or the universe. So many things that I have basically to face, I have no control over. Utmost challenge for any last residue of narcissistic grandiosity, that there are things out there beyond my control. It's a real challenge. It's, it's a real it's a real big and difficult thing to be living without being God, isn't it? That's what the narcissist position is. Yeah. If I can't fix your perception, I must declare you ill or wrong or invalid or immoral or something like that. Anybody who doesn't have my take is basically either stupid or immoral or sick. So, uh, acknowledging that I ultimately have, over so many things in the world, no power, it means I, I have to uh, take ownership of my own state. I have to take ownership of my own mind. I have to take ownership of the reactivity of this particular mind I have most influence on. It's difficult enough to influence this mind because there is this black monkey and there's this black elephant and now there's this little black rabbit who all are, um, they're kind of indispensable. Yeah? Attention is definitely indispensable. The mind is definitely indispensable. Uh, but uh, they're still quite black. So effort is needed. And this, our monk has, uh, makes that effort. He ropes the elephant in. He establishes relationship. And he goads. He goads this. You see, the flame has not really much receded. The monkey is still ahead as they can progress, number 17. And the monk still has to run. He struggles to stabilize the mind, to deepen the relationship. But we see the elephant is getting whiter and whiter. The rabbit is getting a little whiter. The monkey is getting a little whiter. And all of them look back at the monk. In other words, the contemplative path has begun for real. Things are getting better after the curve. You see the fires are receding a little bit. The effort uh, can now be diminished. The monkey miraculously is tailing behind now. So it's not the distracting mind that is the distracting attention, the, the scattered attention that is leading the elephant. It's actually uh, the monkey that is led by the elephant. Even the little rabbit is almost half white and the elephant is half white. The monk now is ahead. Yeah? He has left the rope behind. He only uh, uses his goad to give an occasional prod and he still observes. So you see, the monk uh, still pays close attention to what's happening. We also see, and uh, I'm not sure you have to pay close attention to this, if you look at the tree in the left side, 
Somewhere on that branch going out to the right side where there are three fruits, there's a little monkey sitting there. Yeah? That little monkey is not on the path. That attention plays with some fruits. This is <coughs> an image for, at that stage of the path, many interesting things happen to your mind. And you will need, even the interesting things, even connected with Dharma, you need to leave these things behind to progress on the path of stillness. So there are wholesome distractions which seem blameless, which seem interesting, which seem valuable in terms of dharma, but in terms of samatha, they are like the monkey who has lost the path and just nibbles at the fruits, gets lost with the fruits along the path. The next stage, number 22, shows our elephant rather calm. Yeah. His pace is placid, his trunk is hanging straight down, his color of black is receding. The, the monkey reliably tags along on the elephant's tail and the monk no longer looks back, he walks ahead. He occasionally uses his goad to give uh, a direction, but he doesn't do anything overt anymore. Now the mind is peaceful enough um, that the, the energy of the flame behind the monkey uh, can be seen to be receding further and things look really uh, on a much better way. Let me have a look here. I spare you the mm, Sanskrit terms here. This is the stage uh, the uh, tradition calls thorough pacification. Yeah. After long persevering practice, the meditator reaches complete pacification of the mind. The mind is allowed to rest. It concentrates on its own. It concentrates on its own. The hair has disappeared. Now, for me, this is a rabbit rather than a hair. So the rabbit has disappeared. Subtle uh, distractions are gone. The days is gone, clarity is established, um, the tools of uh, sati and sampajanya are there, although they are no longer in, in active use, yeah? they are no longer being wielded. Things are very peaceful, you see the monkey crouching uh, on the floor there. Uh, the monkey leaves the elephant now squats behind the monkey in complete obeisance. However, there are still slight traces of black as the discerning reader discer uh, picks up. Yeah? The hind legs of the elephant are still holding a little black. So the, this is possible. Th further sinking of mind are, uh, can possibly arise, but they cannot really take root anymore. And finally, we see the monk uh, walking ahead, not looking back, quite placid, and the elephant now, without monkey, completely white, walking on behind him, very tame. The next stage, we see the meditator sitting there in the cave, and the monk, uh, so the monk sits there, having a rainbow coming from his heart, 
and the elephant is lying down, completely tame. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting position. It's the basically the complete uh, the entrance into samadhi. Strangely enough, the, the Sanskrit tradition calls this upajara samadhi. What, what in what in the Pali commentarial tradition is neighboring neighboring concentration, which is a, a very weak stage of concentration. Um, here in this tradition. Uh, this is the culmination. So the meditator sits there totally non-dependent on his senses in perfect equanimity in his cave and uh, the elephant is at rest. Yeah. There is no limit to the length of, of fixed concentration. According to the meditator's feeling, his mind is completely uh, and the object have become one. So the unification has now become perfected. This ninth stage of samadhi or mental absorption is attained through the power of total habituation, familiarization and integration of samatha, of calm abiding. Yeah. Now, some extraordinary stuff happens, as you see. It gets really fancy. On the rainbow, emerging from the heart of the meditator in the cave, you have a few things taking place. First of all, number 29 is the flying monk. Yeah. The flying monk is bodily bliss. Yeah. The monk flies alone in the air. This is a, the image of a complete bodily bliss, somatic bliss. The monk riding on the elephant, riding the rainbow on his <laughs> completely tame and white elephant now, this is uh, mental bliss. And then you see Another image, an elephant coming back, the other direction, uh, the monk brandishing, brandishing the sword of wisdom, now having unified samatha and vipassana, um, and returns the sword of wisdom capable of understanding emptiness. Again, you see the flame arising behind him. Uh, effort now is needed again, and there are two dark rainbows coming from his heart. These two dark rainbows, they're not very well depicted on our black and white uh, um, image here. One of them uh, is the, the klesha uh, nivarana, the hindrance of karmic dark um, actions which need to be cut off. Yeah. The karmic heritage that needs to be cut off and the, the sword of wisdom being brandished here is about to cut off these dark rainbows. Um, the uh, second one, the second dark rainbow is the, the rainbow of illusion. Yeah? It's, the, it's a mental uh, distortion. The Pali tradition has a, a name for this, viparyashas, the, the distortions of mind, of which more uh, some, other, some other evening. Uh, I hope to get into this. And that is what our celebratory uh, meditator does now, having completed the pass of shamatha in the cave with stage nine and the sleeping elephant. Something else happens now with the extraordinariness of his deep stillness. He invokes, again with energy, insight and wisdom to cut off the mental hindrances of karmic obstruction and of mental distortions and triumphantly rides contemplating emptiness. 
Yeah, so it'll. So, I guess you have a roadmap there. Uh, as you see ac across these traditions, even here, which is an explicit shamatha path, you see the culmination of shamatha brings about insight. It culminates in bringing a, a transcendent forms of mindfulness and clear comprehension back to contemplate emptiness and to cut off the distorting power of mind and to cut off past inherited bad traits. Yeah? That's what karmic is. Karmic or the karma in this sense is actually not referring to so much karma, but it refers to vipaka, to the fruition of things. We manage to transform either by cutting off or by starving or by transforming through insight the patterning that is unwholesome in our lives. Well, good. There it is. <laughs> I thought you uh, enjoy a, a little detour into some pictorial mapping of the path of stillness. It's uh, maybe interesting to see how much effort is in there, isn't it? The uh, amount of speed and the ferociousness of monkey and elephant may remind you of some of the things you know from yourself. I certainly feel slightly, I feel, um, I feel caught when I see this, you know, and uh, I like the, the little twists there with the, with the rabbit. Yeah? As soon as it gets better, you have a new set of challenges. Yeah? <laughs> Every bend of the way, where you seem to know that, you know, something has helped, this is behind me finally, and with that, stage a new set of uh, exigences uh, occur and all your tools that you have developed before what has kept you in good stead suddenly has to prove itself to be still valid and some of it is no longer valid yeah? so wielding your rope and wielding your goat doesn't help you after the second bend anymore so the willpower your harnessing force doesn't necessarily do the job anymore. So you have to learn to use new tools. With your mind changing its color, uh, new, a new skill set is needed, a new tool set is needed. I think that's also part of the message. Then the gradual refinement of effort. You know, effort is still, you know, at page, at point 22, you still have the monk leading the way, wielding his sampajanya. Um, there's still relationship, you know, even although that monkey is completely white and now staying uh, quite uh, in a docile way behind, it's still, uh, there's still a relationship going on there. Yeah? The, the monk still has to lead the way at stage 26 with a completely path, peaceful mind. Yeah? So that, I think, is a, is a nice depiction, and I'm also particularly heartened by that little monkey there in the tree eating fruits and enjoying himself happily, and being basically off the mark, you know, be, being off the path. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't, who wouldn't recognize? I certainly, you know, have nibbled at fruits along the path and enjoyed little detours, which um, felt in some way inspiring and even connected with wholesome stuff, but 
basically have diminished my focus and my energy on uh, perseverance. Yeah. Good. I leave you with that. Thank you for your attention. Uh, let us do some more sitting. <clears throat>